this is for the public to enjoy. It's a National Historic Landmark. There's a reason why this needs to be saved. Standing at 110 feet, the outer walls are cracked and weathered from combating the elements and soaking saltwater mist from the ocean waves. The Montauk Point Lighthouse stands at the very tip of Long Island, and it attracts about 100,000 tourists every year. Tourism on the island is a $6 billion industry. It's got parks, restaurants, and of course beaches, but also history and traditions that many Long Islanders are working to preserve. We would like this work to be our legacy, that people will look back and on the people who spearheaded this and fought for it so that future generations can have this, you know, that they can be thought of in a way like, wow, what a dynamic team they were. Henry Osmer is the historian on that team, the Montauk Historical Society. They're responsible for maintaining the lighthouse and preserving its rich history, a task that's become more challenging as the ocean creeps closer. This is Higher Ground from WSHU Public Radio. I'm J.D. Allen. The Montauk Point Lighthouse has been the pride of Long Island for centuries. These days, it's even featured on some versions of the New York State license plate. It's a beacon to those who live here, and boy, has it been through a lot over the years. George Washington commissioned the lighthouse. Uh, he never was here, though. Uh, he was on Long Island uh, during the Revolution, of course. The connection is here. Construction wrapped up in 1796, just a few years after Washington's commission. The lighthouse's birth certificate, as Henry calls it, was signed by Thomas Jefferson, the Secretary of State at the time. Uh, that was for the purchase of 13 acres of land for the light station, uh, for the princely sum of $250 which a lot of people ha-ha about, but in today's money, it's probably a little less than $5,000. But as I say to people, if you could get 13 acres in Montauk for $5,000, you'd you grab it right away. Henry says, while obviously it would take some time, that was the launching point for the bustling Montauk we know today. Even though there was nothing out here in those days, except a couple of houses, uh, and the lighthouse ultimately. So, you know, it was a lonely, desolate place, Montauk, for a long time. Montauk would become a significant junction for sailors as the furthest east you could travel. They were either heading west along the south shore to New York City or north to Long Island Sound towards Connecticut. Lighthouse keepers used to climb the tower with oil lamps to guide ships to shore. It was on the map once the lighthouse was built because now shipping would have a much easier time of it. And the, the facts bear that out, that after the light went into operation, which is, was the following spring of 1797, the number of shipping mishaps around here dropped dramatically. Eventually, a railroad was built as a speedy way to ship goods back and forth from New York City. But Henry credits a rich guy named Carl Fisher for the next step in Montauk's development. A lot of those Tudor-style buildings you see in town, that was part of his plan. The tall office building in town, that was his uh, office building. Uh, being the shrewd businessman he was, he used the penthouse on the top as his real estate office, so you could step out on the balcony and he could just wave his arm and say, you two can live in this paradise, you know, that kind of thing. He bought 10,000 acres to build the Miami Beach of the North, a paradise, 
but not for long. The Wall Street crash of 1929 burned the businessman bad. Then the 1938 hurricane walloped Long Island. Homes and downtown buildings wiped out. It actually made Montauk into its own island for a short time. By then, Carl Fisher was sick and he died the next year, but the lighthouse survived. If there's another 38 hurricane, Montauk has a lot more to lose Yes. than the 38. A lot more to lose. When the lighthouse was built, it was 400 feet from the Atlantic Ocean. Today, it's just 100 feet away. So the lighthouse was set in the right spot. It gave us the time over the course of history. But So the question would be, with all this talk about climate and, and storms and everything, why are we staying put? What's the reason that we're, we're, we're hanging out on this hill with confidence and with a $30 million job to come in to bolster what we've shown works on the site. Greg Donahue has been managing the lighthouse property for over 30 years. I'm a hill ape who wandered into town in 1973 and uh, started gardening in town and brought my gardening concepts to Georgina. I helped her with plants and she taught me about terracing and that's when I started looking at bluff stabilization. Thanks, thanks to Georgina. Georgina Reed, she's no longer with us, but that little old lady saved the lighthouse. She was short in stature, but she had the heart of an elephant because she loved this lighthouse. For over 15 years, Georgina led a group of volunteers to stabilize the erosion of the bluffs beneath the lighthouse. They built terraces that scaled up the steep cliffs and planted grasses to hold the sand in place so it wouldn't just get washed away innovative for the time. But we, because we have a wraparound point right here, we have a shot at keeping this building here for what I will say is many, many generations to come. And without that one individual showing up, we wouldn't even be talking about this. Okay, we wouldn't even talk, the, the lighthouse would have been probably boarded up by now, it wouldn't be owned by the historical society, it wouldn't be a place for a historic interpretation, it would be strike three, you're out. And as innovative as Georgina's methods were, Greg and Henry acknowledge that as climate change accelerates, it's a temporary fix. But their outlook is positive, just like Georgina's was. I think Mother Nature will have the last say, no, no problem, including our project right here. But I think with the engineering we have, we can keep this thing, this baby here for another hundred years, no problem. In a hundred years from now, who knows what kind of technology is going to be around then? It could be something none of us have ever even thought about. I mean, how do you know? You just, you don't. And, and maybe it's more effective, maybe not, but it'll be something new. Hi, I'm Davis Donovan, host of the WSHU podcast, Off the Path. I explore all kinds of hidden nooks and crannies and fascinating history on the road from New York to Boston. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And of course, you can find Off the Path from New York to Boston on WSHU Public Radio. Fast forward to today. Montauk, aka The End, is one of the island's more famous downtown areas. And it's easy to see why people love it out here in the Hamptons. Six state parks, the largest recreational fishing site in the state, and according to some, the best surfing on the East Coast. Montauk is a very busy place, um, and tourism really is the, the center of the economy here in Montauk. So it's a great place to visit, of course, but also a great place to profit off of all that summer traffic. 
Restaurants, gift shops, a massive strip of lodging. Montauk has everything, and all within a short walk to the beach. Allison Branco, the coastal director at the Nature Conservancy, is outside a downtown coffee shop. It's not just one row along the beach. It's many streets, many blocks in all directions that make up this downtown. It's hot, arguably the hottest day of the summer. And there are a ton of people here today. Families with coolers headed to the water, couples enjoying a weekend away. Main Street is just packed bumper to bumper with cars. Allison says for such a busy area, this place is quite fragile and it could look completely different come the next storm. Montauk is a really vulnerable place, vulnerable to flooding and um, the erosion that comes along with it um, because of sea level rise. And then also, of course, super vulnerable sticking out at the tip of Long Island, super vulnerable to big hurricanes. The superstorm that Sandy brought was momentous. What was significant uh, was the storm surge. Kevin McAllister is with us too. He's the founder of the environmental advocacy group Defend H2O. And he lives close by, so he saw Sandy's impact here firsthand. He says there was significant flooding, especially for a place with so much vulnerable and valuable infrastructure. So the actual piling of water into the inland bays and on the coast, um, I believe it was uh, around seven or nine feet, might have been even greater. All that water didn't come from the ocean front to Montauk South where the storm hit, but actually came in on the northern bay side. You remember where we met Barley Dunn at the town's shellfish hatchery? Kevin says that's an important observation. You know, obviously there's ocean beaches for recreational value, but the, you know, the real ecological value is, is really on the uh, bayside and the myriad of uh, creeks and harbors that, you know, support a, a tremendous amount of wildlife and, and uh, really the bread baskets to the estuary. We take a stroll down Hotel Row. Some of them are built right into the dunes immediately behind the public beach area. That's really what attracts these tourists, and it looks like a perfect summer getaway. Wake up, step outside, and you're right on the beach. But Kevin says in their natural form before all the development, these dune systems were vital for storm mitigation. And this functions as a natural shock absorber. It is a sand surplus under storm events and wave attack will release that material uh, to the beach, replenishing the beach. Those dunes may look like great beachfront real estate, but building here is not only bad for the environment, it's bad for business. And I'm convinced that the uh, what I refer to as the front row, so roughly 10 or 12 uh, buildings, motels that were constructed in the 60s, uh, they actually flat top the primary dune to construct these buildings. So we don't have that system intact. There is no dune system associated with the beach. That natural shock absorber that would protect the downtown is hindered. If we want to see this community continue to thrive into the future is to find a way to adapt to all these changes while maintaining a nice beach. And you know, that's certainly a challenge and I think that that when everybody really stops to think about it, that needs to be the top priority and that can actually be good because it helps you narrow down the options and, and sets the top priority um, and what we need to do is prevent that beach from getting squeezed between the downtown businesses and the rising water. It would be difficult to just pick up the most prominent parts of downtown and move them somewhere else. But as controversial as that sounds, Kevin says that might be the only option left. We 
have to demonstrate that we, you know, uh, eliminate the um, front row over time uh, to build in that uh, beach dune system. You know, I believe that, you know, local government, um, state government, should really um, put forth a decree. You know, we've got 10 or 15 years, and we're going to uh, eliminate the development on the beach dune system. And if that requires eminent domain, um, then so be it. Eminent domain. Dirty words here on Long Island, as they are in plenty of other places in the country. Meaning the government can take private property as long as they pay you and decide how it will be used for public projects like building roads or saving the environment. That's certainly not going to be an easy conversation for elected officials to start. You know, losing the place that you're attached to that you call home is a loss like any other. Um, the fact of the matter is, these losses are going to happen to us if we don't prepare for them. Um, so the idea is to start the planning and sort of make the changes on our terms rather than let the water come and take our houses from us, which results in a lot more hardship. On the way out of Montauk, I meet the guy who's actually in charge of its future, East Hampton Town Supervisor Peter Vance Goyick. Of course, it's the beach itself that is the number one economic driver out here. So allowing the beach enough space to exist is really important. We don't want to be building bulkheads and boardwalks and whatnot. It's the natural beaches that are really our biggest draw. The town has a lot at stake to preserve Montauk, as we've come to find with each coastal community that relies on tourism dollars. We have an awful lot of um, real estate that's at risk. In fact, the South Fork of Long Island, I think, has uh, among the highest rates of potential loss to tax base due to sea level rise anywhere in the country. Peter's talking about national flood insurance maps that show the Hamptons has the most property value in jeopardy from coastal flooding as the climate changes. The Montauk Hamlet study assesses and looks at how to transition away from that shoreline to let that beach to continue to exist and still provide the uh, hospitality businesses a, a location proximate to the beach. Congress has now approved funding for the Fire Island to Montauk Point Project, or FIMP. We learned from Allison Branco at the start of her journey together that this plan has been decades in the making. Money would go towards beach replenishment, dune restoration, and voluntary raising of homes and businesses. And at one point in time, it seemed like a great long-term solution, but with today's accelerated environmental changes, it might not be still viable. You know, I think we've always felt that it was really an intermediate step, and the idea is that hopefully this will give us enough time to complete planning. Because the town gets a ton of money from the property taxes on these exclusive Hamptons homes. We've um, undertaken a coastal assessment and resiliency planning effort within the town. And we're looking at all of our shorelines, those areas that are most impacted, and how to respond to rising sea level and uh, the potential of increasing storm surge. Between erosion experts, environmentalists, business leaders, and lawmakers, there are a lot of opinions on what to do. But Peter says all signs are kind of pointing towards the same thing, retreat from the coast. Although he wouldn't put it that way. I think retreat is not the right word to use. I think adaptation is the right word. Retreat uh, signals failure. And, and I don't think it's failure. I think it, it, it's actually an accomplishment uh, if we can adapt in a way that allows our beaches to 
advance. It should be coastal advance, not coastal retreat. It's unpopular, but it's just about the only plan on the table. There are a lot of folks who think that the future of Long Island is in creating more vibrant downtowns, create economic activity uh, for jobs. And then there's the the other vision, which is the kind of no development is a coastal place. And so it is inherently at risk. And so whether you're building in the middle of the island or whether you're building on the coast, you know, building on Long Island comes with with risks. I talked about this earlier with urban planner Donovan Finn. He says there's a lot to consider about making a lasting change. There's money. You know, we're talking somewhere in the range of three to twelve billion dollars, right? That it would take. Um, that's a that's a huge amount of money, right? And so you multiply that times all those other places. Where will people move? One of the problems on Long Island is there's not really anywhere for them to go. We're we're a we're a place that's pretty much built out. Social implications. It's a new normal of some kind. But for a uh, the the more affluent you are, the easier it is to find a new normal that's pretty similar to the old normal. And the big one. Convincing folks it's necessary. The goal is to take development out of the areas with the greatest threat. So the area in the dunes right on the beach. Planners are proposing, rather than just buying people out, a transfer of development rights. So that hotel or restaurant on the property can remain for now, but won't be able to build or rebuild from that point on. Um, that person leaves Long Island. That means... You know, whatever job they're doing isn't done anymore. Um, if they're a business owner, their business might go with them. Town supervisor Peter Van Squake says it's going to come down to whatever makes the most sense for people economically. Should they just ride it out and when the big one comes, then they'll get their insurance money and, you know, move on? Or is there a way to incentivize that for redevelopment? I mean, many of our frontline hotels are 50, 60 years old. Uh, they could stand... Um, you know, uh, an upgrade. Leaving the Hamptons, I let all of these conversations sink in. The only way to expand or upgrade business would be to move to a new location inland. To make a real impact on the beach, that's going to take a lot of willing participants. Maybe even a lighthouse. WSHU delivers what you need when you need it. Trusted news, reporting, and culture that keeps you accurately informed and authentically inspired. It's what we're here to do and what you count on. I'm WSHU senior political reporter Ebong Udama. Your financial support gives our reporters the resources to separate fact from falsehood and news from the noise. Thank you for listening and supporting WSHU Public Radio. We're stronger together. I've been here now for 50 years. Yeah, you were just a visitor, and then you stayed. That's it. I got off the boat and didn't get back on again. Jim Mallett was a dock worker in London. He came to Fire Island for a date. Foggy May day, and we came over on the ferry, and uh, we went up to the beach here, and suddenly, the, you know, the way the sun burns through that early morning mist, Suddenly the sun shone and I just couldn't believe where it was. The date didn't work out, but decades later, Jim is the mayor of Ocean Beach, one of the few incorporated villages on Fire Island. 
Fire Island is a sandy barrier island off of the south shore. The inhabited stretch is about seven miles long, but just a couple blocks wide. It's known for its nightlife, hotels, waterfront restaurants, and miles of beachfront. And thousands and thousands of summer tourists allow full-time Fire Island residents, just a few hundred of them, to survive year-round. You have a seasonal community here, and that's the thing. This place survives. Everybody survives. Everybody that works here, the infrastructure here for restaurants and, and, and kids' camps and fire departments and all the rest of the stuff that makes a community is, uh, is June, July, and August. And in order for everybody, all these people that are invested here, with family, most of these restaurants are family-owned restaurants. And the families are there, and they've, all, they've always been there. Jim owns a bar here in Ocean Beach, too, the Albatross. A tourist stopping in is usually more concerned with sun and surf than they are with climate change. But for the people who are making a living out here, the threat of sea level rise is imminent. So the people who live here, the full-timers, the ones who come into your bar and they, and they talk to you and they see you, you know, do they? Are they aware yeah. of what's going on? That's a good question. You just give them a drink and... There you go, and the conversation starts. But I think most people, are, you know, a lot of people out here are highly educated people and I think that uh, you know not that they sit around and fret about every single day when are we going to sink. Fire Island is essentially a big pile of sand with a whole lot of development and it's less than a mile between the bay side and the ocean so you can imagine hurricanes sandy had a lasting impact here. I feel like King Canute keeping the, keeping the waves back you know you sit there on the throne and Tell the waves to go back, and the people behind you saying, "Come on, you're not working hard enough." But it, it's it's changed a lot here, and, and I came to work, ended up working for the village early in the early days, and you see the difference here now. You know, you used to be able to dig down here in the village green; it would you would go two feet before you would have water. Now you go six inches. Fire Islanders are used to dealing with some extreme weather, but Sandy was different in that for the first time in years, residents were forced to evacuate the island. I was thrown in the deep end and it didn't scare me. I, you know, I didn't falter. You know, I said, okay, what's the first thing we gotta do? Let's, we gotta protect this place from fire. So we gotta disconnect every gas tank that's in town. Everything here is LP gas, propane gas. Let's get that done. Let's button up the houses. You know, and it was one thing after another. And then people wanted to come back here, which was a pretty daunting thought that people would just get back on the boat and, uh, and come out of here because everything was flooded, everything was broken. Everything was flattened. Yeah. The water came through, and in many places, it didn't even look like someone could have lived here before. Yeah. Uh, and that's true. But we had thousands of people who wanted to get back here to their property, to their, to their houses, yeah. And we wouldn't let them back on. There was a curfew here. Jim points to a map on the wall to show me just how far the water came through. This is the village wall right here. Okay? So the bay came up to here. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Just about here. 
It basically cut it in half. More than half. And to Jim, when retreat is not really an option, the only way to go is up. Ocean Beach was given millions in taxpayer dollars to help rebuild and raise downtown. So that's why everything is, is raised up now. When we did our new ferry terminal, which is right here, everything there, all the plugs, every, all the electric, is now this high. That was FEMA regulations now to bring all the electric. And there's millions of dollars left to go. We've, we've spent so far, uh, we're up to $30 million worth of federal money we spent up for. We've got another 20 to go. We're still, we're doing a drainage system now that we're working on to drain downtown before we redo our 100-year-old sewer system. We step outside for a tour. Far Island is a special place for a lot of reasons, one of them being there are no cars. Bikes and golf carts are the best way to get around. Cut yourselves in, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Steve Broadgum is our guide. He's the village administrator. It's great working here on Fire Island. They need my expertise and um, I offer them 24-7. So. <laughs> the lifestyle here is so laid back and relaxed. Most people are walking around in swimsuits with ice cream cones in their hand. Kids are barefoot. Off the main road, they hop on their bikes and zip down side streets to the beach. We pass by a summer camp, a massive pile of bikes at the gate. What a perfect place to be a kid. It's right on the water. The camp has sailboats, and you can see a toll here with kids. They ride their bikes to camp from from the surrounding areas in the, in the village. See, they get their sailboats, they have docks here. Um, this is a great source of community pride. As we continue our ride around, we recognize a place we came across in our research, Rachel's Bake Shop. We first saw Rachel's on an interactive federal NOAA map that demonstrates sea level rise over time. You click through the timeline and can see the water will eventually be at their front door. Rachel's front door is now raised at least eight feet above sea level. Yeah, Rachel's just raised theirs, or encouraging the others, but... Um, well, if they're going to put it on a NOAA map, they, sh they better raise it, huh? Uh, well, it's, you know, they're getting killed with the insurance. That's a driving force. Um, I, I, I guess the village board could do something like that, but it could be a huge hardship for some of these like people. What? To force the downtown to raise all their houses. Or, or all their buildings. The village has also had to build up the ferry terminal, so hundreds of thousands of tourists can reach its downtown and Fire Island beaches. And it's not just storms that they have to worry about. Steve says flooding is becoming worse and more frequent every year. Even a full moon is enough to create a big problem. There are a tremendous amount of people here that are enjoying their summer, but we're looking at the things that People are probably the least interested when and they're here. Correct. It's like where they go to the bathroom, how they drink yeah, clean know. water. And all the million, tens of millions of dollars, you can't see it. I mean, you see it in the boathouse, but you, you, you don't see it, you know, in the sewer plant. Um, and you don't see it underground. Um, and that uh, is, you know, it's not politically uh, appealing, but the mayor has done a great job. I was going to say, Steve, this is where I saw the water, right here. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, this is uh, right... The stormwater runoff is going to start right here and go east all the way to the sewer plant. And um, there we are going to make it a, a lot better. You know, you can't solve it. Is it getting worse? 
Yeah, you know, it, it, it is. For the people who live on Fire Island, water is literally coming up under their feet. Still, saving this place means everything to full-time residents. Fantasy world. Okay. It was, it was the best childhood that I think anybody could have living, growing up on the shore like this. Luke Kaufman has called this island home for his entire life. Tourists can thank Luke that they're able to visit places like Ocean Beach. He operates the Fire Island Ferry. I mean, it's, it's not just a resort. I mean, a lot of people live here and make their livelihoods here. And although a lot of it is weather dependent, uh, in, in high season, we are busy all the time. Luke's Ferry carries about a half a million people per year round trip. He says with all the preparation that goes into getting ready for the summer, there isn't much of an off-season lull. It's gear-up time. Pretty much once March gets here, you're not even keeping track of the calendar because it's, it's just that busy for everybody all the time um, as far as getting stuff done and people ordering stuff, all the stores are ordering uh, their supplies. We're going to return to spend more time with Luke on Fire Island later in this series. Before that, we'll take a look at the struggles of agricultural tourism and examine other canaries in the coal mine for climate change. But Luke's made something clear. If tourism economies are going to survive, protecting the homes, communities, and beaches is paramount. And he has a message for those who might feel as if taxpayer dollars spent here are literally going to blow away in the wind. You're protecting a bunch of elitists who have all second homes over here. My opinion is a bit different on that. First thing is, if you look at other places in the United States, like where these dams are failing on the Mississippi, you're not telling all of these people to abandon their homes hundreds of miles around, just like now with these wildfires. They're, they're not moving. They're going to be smarter about how they build their next home. And the cost of replenishment for this beach and what it does for Long Island is, I think, tenfold. It, weather Fire Island, there's going to be a benchmark storm where no matter how much sand you put on the beach, Fire Island may disappear in one storm. For now, Luke's hunkered down and we'll visit him again later. Next episode, we're going to explore another industry that's experiencing climate-related growing pains. What you want, who you be, what you need, why you talking to me? Don't be quiet, I'm a needle to the weave. Better talk or you'll fall through the seams. Spit it out, what's your play? Think you're slick with your bag or what it tricks? I'm not fooled by the shape of your lips. Just a suit in the shape of a tick. Higher Ground is produced and mixed by Sabrina Garone and me, J.D. Allen, with editing from Harriet Jones. Kelly Hills Mucky and Sarah Ruberg did fact-checking and research. Music is composed by Samuel Davies and Eric Harper. Graphic art by Joshua Joseph. This podcast was made possible by the Allen Alda Center for Communicating Science. Higher Ground is a production of WSHU Public Radio. For more, go to WSHU.org. The next episode is available wherever you get your podcasts. Sew it up, close a rip, put a nice little plaque on the slip. I can sew like a Vincent Van Gogh. No one needs ever know to start the show. Have you found what you lost? Have you lost what you found? Do you really understand how you sift for a love in the sand? Like